Open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And we're looking at verses 12 through 17 today. Hebrews chapter 12. Follow as long as I read this passage. It says, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it for it with tears. Exhortation, it is one of those interesting words. We don't use it much in life. It's a biblical word, really. Apart from the use in the Bible, we really don't use the word exhortation. We don't use that word exhort or exhortation. It's a rare person that would use those words outside of biblical context. But the Bible talks about exhortation a lot, and it uses the word often. The idea with exhortation is that one would be emphatically urging another to do something. It's not just a request. It's really just not even an urge. It's uh, with energy, emphatically. You need to do this. This is important. This is significant. It means to urge, to appeal, to join with another in doing that thing. It has that idea of comfort, as we talked about last week. Really, although the word isn't used all that often, the whole Bible is a book of exhortation being exhorted to do this or that, being comforted, being called alongside to work with other people and to do things. Exhortation has the idea that there is a call to do something. It's not just think this way. It's not just be this way. Exhortation is a call to do something. It's to live your life in such a way, it's to behave in such a way that you're reflecting the truth of the Scriptures. And here in Hebrews chapter 12, in these verses we're looking at, we are exhorted to do some things. We are called on to do some things. Exhortation is a word that is often found after the word, or exhortation as a concept is often found after the word, therefore. As we've seen in Hebrews and those that are in our Sunday night study, we've seen in Romans, we see it in so many different places. That after the, the Bible, or excuse me, a, a letter is laid out, the, the first part of it often is doctrine. Here's what you need to know. And then somewhere along the line it changes to, therefore, apply these things because of that. That's why the exhortation thing comes after therefore a lot. Okay, you got the knowledge, you got the concept, you got the idea, but the point of Christianity has never been just intellectual intellectual 
<laughs> I'm stuck there, right? <laughs> the idea of the Bible has never been just to, to become more intellectual. That was weird. At any rate, it, but it has always been that we, are, we need to take that intellect and apply it. We need to take that knowledge and put it to use in our lives. And that's what's being asked of us here in Hebrews chapter 12. On the heels of, of God's teaching about discipline, he then exhorts us to go on and do some things. And on Tuesday night, in our Bible study on Tuesday night, our, our Digging Deeper Sermon 2.0, we looked at, at this stuff of discipline in a different way a little bit on Tuesday night. And we saw that it was really interesting that all of God's involvement with us really is a form of discipline. It's, it's, it's draw, pushing us toward things, drawing us toward things, guiding us toward things, wanting us to go to certain places and to be certain people and to do certain things. God is disciplining us in all aspects of our life using all sorts of different things. Well, on the heels of that, he then exhorts us, as God is doing some work in our lives, here's some things that you need to be doing. Understand that God is working. Understand that God's discipline is what you have in your life because you belong to him. Therefore, here are some things that you need to do. And the things that we need to do are laid out very clearly here. It talks about the fact in verse 12, we need to strengthen. In verse 13, we need to make straight. In verse 14, we need to pursue. And in verse 15, we need to see to it. Those are the basic things that he says you need to do in this passage. And so as we begin this passage this morning, I would simply say, Areola Bible, you, you, you've been instructed. You know, you know the truth. You've read it yourself. We've worked our way through these verses. We've been in this book for weeks and weeks and months and months. Well, now God is calling us to do something with it. And specifically right now, strengthen, make straight, pursue, and see to it. The first one is in verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. The writer of Hebrews goes back to a race metaphor that he's been using before as he has been telling us about these great truths. And the idea of uh, dropping one's hands, weak knees, those are, those are signs that are unmistakable that I absolutely have no more energy. I'm almost done. I'm just, I'm drooping. My, my, my hands are weak. I can't hardly hold them up. My knees are feeble. They're shaking. I'm, I'm not sure I can drag myself another step. And this idea of hands that are weak and knees that are feeble, it's a mental and a spiritual slowdown when that happens to us. We're not sure we can go on. I don't think I can do it. I don't do this very often, but I came upon an illustration that I'd like to read to you this morning. This was written by a gentleman named Art Carey. It's taken from a piece that he wrote in the Philadelphia Inquirer describing his experience of running in the Boston Marathon. He says this, it's toward the end. By now, the rigors of having run nearly 20 miles are beginning to tell. My stride has shortened. My legs are tight. My breathing is shallow and fast. My joints are becoming raw and worn. My neck, neck aches from all the jolts that have ricocheted up my spine. 
half-dollar blisters sting the soles of my feet. I'm beginning to feel queasy and lightheaded. I want to stop running. I have hit the wall. Now the real battle begins. Up the first of many long inclines, I start to climb. One, two, one, two, one, two, right, left, right, left, right, left. I keep watching my feet move one after another, hypnotized by the rhythm, the passage of the asphalt below. Shoulder cramps, laden legs, seething blisters, dry throat, empty stomach, stop, keep moving, must finish. A radio listing spectator reports that the race is over six miles away. Bill Rogers has won again. His ordeal is done. The most intense of mine is about to begin. Heartbreak Hill. The last, the longest, the steepest, a half a mile struggle against gravity designed to finish off the faint and the faltering. Hundreds of people stand along the hill watching, urging, we might say exhorting, the walkers to jog, the joggers to run, the runners to speed on to Boston. Slowly, ever so slowly, the grade begins to level out. The last four miles are seemingly endless. Some runners, their eyes riveted catatonically on the ground, trudge alone along, excuse me, in their bare feet, holding their hands in their hands the shoes that have blistered and bloodied their feet. Others team up to help each other, limping along arm in arm, like maimed and battled weary soldiers returning from the front. Finally, the distinct, distinctive profile of the Prudential building looms in the horizon. I begin to step up my pace faster and faster, smoother and smoother, suppress the pain, finish up strong, careful, not too fast, don't cramp. I can see the yellow stripe 50 yards ahead. I run faster, pumping my arms, pushing off my toes, defying, clutching, clutching leg cramps to mount a glorious last gasp kick. 40 yards, 20 yards, 10 yards, cheers and clapping, finish line, an explosion of euphoria. I'm clocked at 2 hours and 50 minutes and 49 seconds. My place, 1,176. I find the figures difficult to believe, but if they're accurate, then I've run the base, best marathon of my life. And while times and places are important, breaking a personal record is thrilling. The real joy of the Boston Marathon is finishing, just doing what you've set out to do. I thought that that just described so incredibly well how it is with us every now and again as believers. I'm just done. I just, I'm done. It seems like I just don't have the energy to take another step. It seems like all, there's a lot of people around me and they're feeling the same way. They just don't have that. And then we read passages like this and we are urged to strengthen our very beings and to finish strong. The writer of Hebrews is calling us to finish strong. He's about done with this letter. He's about done telling them what he wants them to know. And he has, he has laid all of these things out. He has challenged us on a handful of occasions about are you in or are you out? Where are you with the Lord? Make a decision. Make a choice. Stand firm. You've endured a lot. You understand what faith is. You've seen it. You've, you, you know what it is from all of the great examples of the old. You know people who have lived that. Now you have faith. You stand strong and you finish the race. And I'll tell you, if there was ever a call that we need in our world today as Christians, it is strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and finish the race in a strong way. We can never let up. We can never say good enough. God has given us scripture. 
And he has given us prayer, and he has given us meditation, and he's given us rest, and he's given us worship, and he's given us fellowship so that we might strengthen our very being so that we can finish the race in a strong way. Let's look at some verses. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 25. It says this, 24 and 25, let us consider, well, actually 23 through 25, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Encourage one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer of Hebrews understood that as we, as we walk this, this life of faith, as we run this, li- this endurance race, he knew that we would need encouragement. He knew that we would need strengthening from other people. He knew that we would need to, uh, uh, every once in a while, say, I need a little help. And we'd need to recoup somehow so we could press on. First Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5. This is a common theme in Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. This is not a journey you can take on your own. This is a journey you need help with, and we'll see that a little bit later in the same passage. We need to be strengthened every once in a while. We need somebody else to be there that is exhorting us, and we need to exhort them as we press on. Go to Philippians chapter 3. A passage you are very familiar familiar with. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse number 12. Not that I have already obtained or am already become perfect, but I press on so that I lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. He says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Press on, believer. Press on. Back to Hebrews. So he, in, he, he exhorts us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. The next thing is found in verse 13, make straight, make straight. He continues to use phrases and terms that take the listener right back to the Old Testament. And this is one of those verses. Make, make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This is taken from terminology in Isaiah in the Old Testament. The idea that we need to make straight those paths. Let's go back and look. Isaiah chapter 40 Isaiah chapter 40 make straight this path it says in Isaiah chapter 40 beginning in verse number 3 a voice is calling clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness make smooth in the desert a highway for our God let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley make 
the path smooth and straight and easy before you. Chapter 35 of Isaiah. Isaiah 35, verse 10. Uh, Excuse me, beginning in verse 8. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor any vicious beast will go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. And the ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. That's where we need to be as we walk this race, as we live this life of faith, of endurance. We need to make straight the paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather it may be healed. In other words... He is saying that we need to stay the course. We need to continue to walk down the path we're supposed to walk down. Walk down that straight and narrow path toward Jesus Christ. That smooth road. The road where the godly hang out. And you will find some good things take place there. Go to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. And beginning in verse 25. Look at what it says. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. As we are encouraged, as we are exhorted to make straight the paths for our feet, we are, exto- we are are being exhorted to go down the path that is before us that God has laid out, the path of the godly. And we are being wor- warned, do not turn to the crooked path. Do not turn to the rough path. Now, this makes all the sense in the world. Just think about your life. Think about when you're walking with the Lord, although we know that we have difficulties on this earth on a regular basis. When you're walking with the Lord and you're doing the things that you're supposed to be doing, you're in sweet fellowship with the Lord. Don't you feel like life is going down and although there are some pressures from outside, you you feel like you're you're going along and you're where you need to be and, and there's a sense of, there's a smoothness and a straightness in front of me. But disobey the Lord. Sin. Walk in sin for a while. Don't confess that sin. Just waller in that sin for a while. Walk away from the Lord. Do your own thing, and you can sense that the path that you're on is a crooked one. It's a bumpy one. It's an uncomfortable one. It's not one you want to spend a lot of time on because life just doesn't work there because as we've seen from the book of Hebrews all the way back to Cain in the Old Testament, your countenance has fallen, and something's amiss. And the Bible says as you walk with the Lord strengthen and make straight the paths for your feet so that your limbs will not be broken so that you'll be able to do what you need to do make straight those paths and the straight path as Proverbs says is found with God it's found in the Bible there it is are you walking down that straight path the, the challenge here is that you have this information. You understand that the Lord is disciplining you on a regular basis. Are you walking down the straight path? 
or are you wandering? There's one other fascinating thing with this terminology that the writer of Hebrews uses, and that is this. This idea of a path can be and often was used during this time when the Bible was written to refer to the tracks that are left by wheels of carts or a chariot that others then follow. So the question then, as you are walking with the Lord, what path are you leaving behind that others may be following? Because that's a lot of life, isn't it? People follow all the time. And the challenge here, the exhortation here, is to leave a straight path. That it can be said of you like it was said of Paul, follow me as I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to understand that that is a part of life, isn't it? That people are indeed following us. So the first thing that we're exhorted to do is strengthen. The second thing is to make straight paths. The third thing is found in verse 14, and that is pursue. Pursue. And what are we told to pursue here in 14? Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now, first of all, as we get to this verse, we need to say up front that every single believer, every single believer has experienced and knows what peace and sanctification is all about because we have the Holy Spirit. We have been given the peace of God. We have been made sanctified or holy by the Holy Spirit. We are unique. We are different. So that's who we are in Christ. That's, that is what has been given to us and when the Holy Spirit indwells us we have those things there's no doubt about it the issue then is taking that which we've been given taking that which we are positionally in Christ and working that out in a practical way here on this earth in relationships and in day-to-day living so the Bible says in order to make that happen they use this word pursue pursue some things well you know exactly what that means don't you Pursue. You know exactly what that means. I was, uh, I was at, uh, a, a, I think it was a gas station a while back, and uh, yes, I was on my motorcycle, and I was at a gas station, and I got, I got the, uh, the paper towels out, so as I put the gas in, I, I, I would wipe up anything I spilled on my tank, and I went to put the, the nozzle back in there, and the paper towels, off they went. They flew away. And so I start pursuing these paper towels. And you know what that looks like in, in the wind, right? I, I look like a complete idiot, honestly. But, but now people know that I'm chasing a paper towel, so I have no choice, right? I have to pursue this thing until I finally get it. And I was victorious. We all know what it means to pursue, pursue something. We all know that, I, that I, I'm going to catch that thing. I'm going to zig with it. I'm going to zag with it. I'm, I am going to catch up with that thing. I am after that. I'm on a mission. We know what that means. Well, the Bible says pursue a couple things here. And the first thing that we need to, to pursue here, it says, or strive for, or to make every effort to do, or to work hard at, or to chase after, that's what the word pursue means first thing I need to do is I need to pursue, it says in this verse, peace with all men. Peace with all men. This needs to be something that we're doing, not just by accident, according to this verse. 
This needs to be something that we're just not running into. It, it's, it's not that all of a sudden I found a, a, a paper towel and I picked it up just to be a good guy and throw it in the trash. It was I needed to get that thing. I needed to go after that. I needed to make sure with intention that I caught that thing and put it in the trash where it was supposed to go. That's what this pursuit is about. I need to have a plan. I'm going to do it. I'm going to intentionally do this. And here's the thing, believer. I'm going to intentionally do this to such a degree that pursuing peace and pursuing sanctification or holiness is going to mark me. I'm going to be known as a pursuer of these things as a believer. This is part of what God is doing in order to grow me. This is what God wants me to be. This is what God wants me to do as a believer so that I would represent him well. Pursue peace, it says, with all men. Let's look at some verses. Ephesians chapter 4. It says this in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to pursue the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. People read verse 3 and they say, I wonder what in the world Paul's talking about. What he's talking about is doing what verses 1 and 2 say. That's what he's doing. Okay, That's what we need to do. This needs to be who we are. Romans chapter 14. Um, let's go to chapter 12. I beg your pardon. Let's go to Romans chapter 12. It says this in verse 6, Since we have gifts differing according to the grace given to us, each one of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, if he who teaches in his teaching, or in exhorting in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. My point in that verse is this. Do the thing that God wants you to do well. He says, you have been asked to do certain things. You have been asked to live your life in such a way. I don't want you to live your life in such a way where you just kind of haphazardly get it done. He says, I want you to do it well. Well, the Bible says we should pursue this thing called peace with other people. And we should go out about it in such a way that it honors the God and it honors God in such a way that it makes a difference. It makes a difference. Go to Matthew chapter um, 5. Matthew chapter 5. And the Bible simply says in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is speaking, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And in order to live at peace with one another, it means that what we generally need to do is yield to other people. We need to understand that I don't always have to be right. It's okay. Kent Hughes, who writes many commentaries, has said this, those who pursue peace will to forgive, will to let go, will to be kind, will to be thoughtful, will to help others, will to yield to another and will to pray for their enemies. But this certainly sounds like something that you kind of decide 
to do and then you go and practice it. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, understanding that God is disciplining you and growing you, he wants you to be at peace with all people. Now there's a verse in the Bible that says that as much as it depends upon you, sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can do all you can and then that's as far as you can go and you move on. That's all right. But don't let it be your issue. Make sure it's their issue. Make sure you're doing all you can is what the Bible says. We need to be those kinds of people. This is one of those things, and, and let's be honest, let's look around. This is one of those things that in our society will make us stand out a little bit differently than a lot of people if we are actually practicing this particular verse, this concept, this truth. We must pursue then sanctification, it says as well in Hebrews Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see, the, uh, see God. When Jesus was asked what is the greatest command, he said what? He said love God and love others. Those are the greatest commands. Do those things. So this pursuing sanctification, this fulfilling the great commandment is pursuing peace and sanctification all at the same time. You're loving God, you're loving others. You're doing what it is that Jesus has called you to do. This sanctification, it boils down to living a life of obedience, a holy life. And when we live that way, we see God. It says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now I understand you're sanctified. I understand you're made holy. I understand who you are in Jesus Christ. But in a day-to-day practical way, if you pursue sanctification and you are living a holy life, do you know what? You see God. And every single one of us in this room has probably experienced that. Yep, I see God. And when you are not pursuing sanctification, when you are not pursuing a holy life, when you're doing what you want to do out of fleshly desire and you're fulfilling the the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, you don't see God. All you see is yourself. All you see is a means to an end. Pursue peace with all men and pursue sanctification. And when you're pursuing the sanctification, when you're pursuing a holy life by a life of obedience, you see God. And your life is unique and different and fantastic and awesome and wonderful. It is a great, great deal. The next thing that we read in Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 15, is see to it. See to it. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. See to it. This is a one another activity. Now I know it's not in the one another verses. We don't have the word one another in here. This is a one another activity. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. You know what the Bible is saying? In this endurance race of Christianity, you need other people and other people need you. How dare you live your life in isolation? How dare you not look around and be a part of other people? How dare you not encourage other people? How dare you not pour into other people? You belong to the church. They belong to the church. Be a part of one another in the church. Because you know what? There's a lot of people out there, and their hands are weak, and their knees are feeble. There's a lot of people out there that are struggling with staying on that straight path. There's a lot of people out there that are struggling with pursuing peace and pursuing 
righteous living. There's a lot of people that are struggling to do what they ought to do. Life has beat them up and spit them out, and they're not sure which way is up. You join in with them and see to it that they have a different perspective. You have an opportunity to be a part of them in a remarkable way. They need you. You need others. And the Bible says we are to see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God so that none of us, we need to make sure that none of us, I need to see to me as much as I need to see to you, you need to see to me as much as you need to see to you. And we need to see to it so that there's not among the body of Christ people that are coming up short of the grace of God. That is that there are none of us that would ever be in a place where God's grace is not, is not, uh, there would never be a, a, anywhere, <laughs> man, I have stumbled all over myself something fierce this morning, that there would never be a place where any of us would find ourselves where we are missing out on the fact that God's grace is being poured out all over us. Because the fact of the matter is, is God's grace is being poured out upon us on a regular basis. Believer, do you see it? And sometimes I can't see God's grace being poured out on me because life is getting to me so much, but I need somebody else to come along inside me and say, you know what? You're missing it. God's grace is there. Let me help you get it. Let me help you see it. Let me help you experience it. Let me help you walk this way. That needs to happen. And it says in this verse, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. But notice what comes next. If you're not seeing the fact that the grace of God is being poured out on you on a regular basis, you know what's next? Bitterness. Bitterness. That no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble and that you may be defiled by it. Bitterness is right around the corner if we're not making sure that we are rejoicing in and just loving the grace of God that is being poured out on us. Here's why. If I'm not, if I'm not thanking God for the grace that's being poured out on me regularly, if I'm not seeing the grace of God that's being poured out on me regularly, then what I'm seeing is life about me, and I want it to be like this. And when it's not like this, the, I'm going to be mad at the person that's not doing it like this. I'm going to be mad at God. And if I'm mad at God long enough, what happens after that? Bitterness. I have a bitterness toward God. How dare you? Why aren't you being a proper God with me? Why aren't you doing this with me? You want me to do ABC, but you're not willing to do anything for me. And off we go. And bitterness becomes our issue. And it, a root of bitterness, it says, springs up. Have you ever had something like that? Have you ever had a conversation with the Lord? Have you ever talked to somebody else? And, and at the end of it, you thought, whoa, where did that come from? It springs up. There it is. And it causes trouble. Boy, isn't that the truth. It causes trouble. And so we get a little irked at God. We're not where we need to be. We get a little bit more irked at God, and we keep going down this road. We're not in a place where God wants us to be any longer, and we're struggling to see his grace, and all of a sudden, I have this sin issue, and all of a sudden, I have a poor response to God's discipline, and all of a sudden, I'm turning away from God's grace, 
and all of a sudden I have a root of bitterness and it has sprung up and it is controlling everything I think and say and do. And trust me on this, it's a short trip. It doesn't take long, does it, folks? And there it is. There it is. So how can we stop that? Well, we go back and we strengthen and we make straight and we pursue and we see to it. We live our lives with intention, understanding that God is at work and putting the passage in, that was in front of this to work and understanding that God is disciplining us and working to grow us and to change us and to make us what we ought to be for his glory and his honor. Man, that's a neat thing. And here we are where we need to be. I want to do one more thing. Let's look at these last two verses. It says this at the very end of verse 15. He says, So that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Esau was simply concerned about the flesh. That was his only desire, his only focus. Me, the flesh, right now. He had no vision of God. He didn't see the grace of God. It was only me and my needs this moment, this instant. And so he sold his own birthright for a single meal. Then it says in verse 17, For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, so he didn't get the blessing because he sold his birthright down the road, all of a sudden it was time for the birthrights to be passed out. He didn't get it because he sold it, but then he begged for it. He begged for it. I want it. I want it. Isn't there a blessing for me? Isn't there something that I can do? Notice the verse. He was rejected. For he found no place for repentance. What this says and what this means is simply this. He was longing for the blessing of God, but not for God. There was no place, no room in his heart to repent and allow God to come and rule in his life. Folks, when the grace of God is short in our life, not because he is not blessing, but because we don't see it, very quickly a root of bitterness springs up, it causes trouble, and pretty soon our only desire is the blessing of God and not God himself. We need to make sure that we are strengthening and making straight and pursuing and see to it that our walk with God is about God and who he is and how magnificent and remarkable he is. Our desire needs to not be the blessings of God, but God himself. And if we can get there, we would have taken some real steps toward maturity. My desire is you, God. Job said that, didn't he? Yet he slay me, though he slay me, yet will I love him. Habakkuk said it. He said if the grapes don't appear, if the crops don't grow, if there are no cattle, I'm going to love you anyway because you're God and you're worth loving. That's what this is saying. We need to be very careful that we don't ever, ever 
become like Esau. And if you, if you take that root of bitterness that springs up and it causes trouble and you hang on to that for a while, I guarantee you, you will live your life like Esau. You will be fleshly minded, fleshly concerned, and the things of the Spirit will take a second place every single time. And it's a miserable place to believe. And when you're there, boy, I'll tell you what, you are indeed are weak and your paths are crooked and you're not pursuing anything except self. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, God's at work. He's disciplining. He's working. He's showing himself. He's directing you. He's changing things. He's preventing things. He's working to get you to where you need to be. Are you allowing him to do that work? And are you making sure that you are strengthening and making straight paths and pursuing? Just see to these things. See to it that you're enjoying and living in and thanking him for his grace that is being poured out on you. Father, thank you for the word and, and for the passage, and I just pray, Lord, that, that you would do a work, Father, that, that my feeble and weak attempt to explain and, 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 and to communicate falls so short so often, but you and the Spirit of God is able to take that, take those words, and just change lives by your amazing power and I pray that you would do that with this passage on this day in Jesus name. Amen.